Hey, it's Agrita Sandrell, and you're listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast, which calls for the radical healing of the self and community that can allow us to outgrow cultures of scarcity and hyper-individualism so that we can move to more caring and regenerative ways of living and working in community. We begin the new year with an episode on regenerating hope, but I, as a host, will be discussing the age-old concept of regeneration and the power that is held in emulating nature's cycles of growth and rest for the stewardship of our inner and external resources. I really want to emphasize that regeneration, oftentimes we see it as a sort of complete replication of the past. It is not that. Regeneration is all about adaptation and an attempt to restore with respect to what needs of the presence are now. But it's also knowing that time brings change. And no matter how small or large that change is, that change will happen. You know, the end result can look slightly or significantly different to what existed before the change. It can be positive or it can be negative, but that is what we need to accept. Regeneration is basically a cycle within a cycle, within the cycle of life. A cycle where the desired result will always look and feel different under different conditions. I hope you're excited to begin the new year on a hopeful note and that your hope is able to manifest abundance, joy and freedom for you all in the year ahead. Welcome back to Mindful of Everything. Thank you all for joining us again this year and I hope you had a lovely festive break and that your new year has started off in a wonderful and relaxing way. I think we're talking about 2024, you can see that there are quite a lot of expectations being held from this year for so many different reasons. You know, people who believe in astrology, for example, they say that this is a justice year, it's a karmic year and seeing where we are globally, whether it's about the climate or the ongoing human rights violations in Palestine or any other concerns about the welfare of people and the planet, what we need right now is to receive trust, gratitude, courage, love, peace, freedom, in equal abundance, for us all to feel recapacitated to continue on our work as nurturers and carers for our communities and ourselves for this year. And for that, we really need to sustain the cycle of hope so that we're able to manifest the equity and justice we all deserve and dream of, which is exactly why I wanted to start off 2024 for the podcast, for this space, for the first episode, just on this, the regeneration of hope and the importance of that. But again, before we dive right in, we always begin each episode off with a breathing exercise. So we're going to start that off now. Please try to find a space and try to get into the mindset of bringing all of the attention to the body and to yourself. So to start that off, we're going to gently close our eyes, if of course you're able to do that. And we're going to start taking deep breaths. And remember to take those deep breaths throughout the practice. As it's the new year, we want to be reminding ourselves of the ways that we have tended to our bodies and our bodies' needs. Perhaps anything you'd like to change as well. This is a perfect time to do that. I think how we have done the practice in the past year is something that I feel that is a great way to begin conversations that require a lot of attention and are very emotionally intense. 
So I think the way that we do the practice is great and that's what we're going to continue on in this space. So first of all, let's remind ourselves of the place or the space that we're in. Let's become aware of that. So just gently shift your attention to the space. Again, keeping your eyes closed, noticing the vibrations in the room, the sounds in the room. And understanding that this space is holding you so that you can bring that attention to yourself. And, and that's what we're showing gratitude for. This space that is holding us in this moment. And remember to keep taking those deep breaths in between. So now we're going to focus on each part of the body and notice how it shifts into a more relaxed state. So let's start off with the head. Let's change this up a little bit from last year. Just gently move your head in circles. So we're going to start off from the left, gradually shifting the head backwards, moving it to the right, and coming back to center. Repeat again in the same direction. And now go the other direction to the right. And repeat that in the same direction. And now we're going to lift the head so that it is in a comfortable position, not too up, not too down, preparing ourselves for the rest of the exercise. And now let's bring the attention to the shoulders. So just gently push the shoulders up. Now push them back. And let them drop. And repeat this motion. Just creating those circles with your shoulders. And now try to find a position where your shoulders are not too tense and tight and locked. Just about relaxed. Now we're going to repeat that for our back. Just allow the back to straighten as much as you can. And now release that gradually and try to find that relaxed sort of position for yourself. So you're not too slouched and not too uptight. And now we're going to focus on the arms and the hands as well. So allow them to relax. Now we're going to move down to the legs. You can just feel them releasing from any tension. And also your feet. Make sure that they're relaxed too. And I hope now you feel that the body is a bit more relaxed and is now ready to engage in the guided deep breaths we're going to do now. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Take a deep breath 
in and a deep breath out. Deep breath in and deep breath out. Last one, take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. In your own time and if you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. Thank you all for joining me with that. I really do hope that you appreciate the way that we begin each episode with this practice. Um, I think it's a great way to ground ourselves in the healing work that we engage in and we discuss about in this space. So with that hope, we're going to go straight into today's episode on regenerating hope, which I think it's a wonderful way to begin the new year. I am seeing actually more people talk about how there is not really much point in celebrating the new year as compared to previous years, as well as people also expecting a lot from this year. And it's not surprising, of course, it makes total sense. People are saying this because they feel depleted from a whole year's work. And as well as that feeling of depletion, I also think it's because we live in this culture of scarcity, where more is always less. And if you haven't achieved something big, and again, how success and what big is, how success is gauged, is always unclear as well. But oftentimes it's on the lines of, you know, getting an important award or having a story put out to the world uh, through well-known media platforms. Influencer culture is big as well now, for example. So we are, you know, living in this mindset that makes us feel unworthy. That if you haven't achieved a big enough success, it's less likely that, you know, that success is going to come to you in the following year you know, you're probably going to get similar results. And again, that is a result of internalized scarcity. That in itself is a fuel for capitalist systems. Because the more you feel like you have less, the more you will abuse external as well as internal uh, or inner resources to get to whatever delusional sort of state of abundance you aspire to, when in fact that is not abundance, if the intention and the efforts are based off of a scarcity mindset. You're not going to be reaching that state of abundance, it's just going to be a state of uncertainty, which continues to fuel your hunger for more. That is great, because then you'll continue to serve the systems which benefit from your labour and your struggle. Coming back to what I mentioned just now about internal and external resources, I think it's important since you talk about, particularly for those whose New Year's always begin with the intensification of winter. Um, so we're talking about us in the Northern Hemisphere. I am in London, so my new year always begins off with a very, very cold January and it continues on till March. And that goes for anyone else in the Northern Hemisphere. I think it's especially important for us to be talking about internal and external resources because winter is really that season that really tests us and really pushes us to engage in effective resource management. I think I was really inspired by this take on winter, or at least I came to that realization, seeing how the Northern Hemisphere experiences the start of the new year and also the intensification of winter at the same time, when I discovered a very beautiful excerpt from Catherine May's book, Wintering, and that was through Advaya's Instagram page. 
It's a beautiful book from the looks of it. I haven't yet read it. But she is talking about the power of resting and caring for ourselves in the winters of our life. So winter in this case is an extended metaphor for those ups and downs in the cycle of life. And I really just wanted to read out that excerpt. And I think I'll definitely post it on the website or Instagram, one of them. But it goes like this. Plants and animals don't fight winter. They don't pretend it's not happening and attempt to carry on living the same lives as they lived in the summer. They prepare. They adapt. They perform extraordinary acts of metamorphosis to get them through. Winter is a time of withdrawing from the world, maximizing scant resources, carrying out acts of brutal efficiency, and vanishing from sight. But that's where the transformation occurs. Winter is not the death of the life cycle, but it's crucible. I think that's a beautiful way to look at winter as opposed to the dominant cultural representation of winter as dark and gloomy. You know, there's no growth happening. People talk about winter blues. May's understanding, however, of winter, it absolutely accepts the dark and the difficult. She calls it the crucible of the life cycle. But she also talks about withdrawing from the world to adapt and prepare for this season of metamorphosis, mainly through maximizing resources, essential resources, and accepting that winter is an inevitable stage of life. It's an inevitable stage and season of every year. May is particularly talking about nature and our kin out in the wild and of course how brutally efficient they have to be at resource management to survive. But I think nature's adaptation to as well as acceptance of winter and change is not just about external resource management but also the regeneration of essential inner resources as well. Which is why I actually want to dedicate a whole chunk of this episode on inner resource management. So linking back to what I previously said about people feeling depleted and burnt out in the new year, particularly for us living in the Northern Hemisphere, it can be challenging to rejuvenate and to recharge when the surrounding environment has limited resources for us to do so. This is, I think, a very crucial part where we really need to begin practicing and balancing our inner and outer resources so that we can smoothly move to the, not just a seasonal transition, but also the transition into the new year. And that's why I think winter is a wonderful metaphor for this transition. Even though I understand not everyone is experiencing this seasonal change in the new year, but it definitely acts as inspiration and a source of hope to get us through new beginnings. Inner resource management is something that we began discussing about in the episode with Laura Hartley on disembodying capitalism and burnout culture. But today I want to ground that in hope regeneration, which I think pushes us out of the isolating mindsets of scarcity and even survivorship to a mindset of abundance and kinship, which is very important to live and thrive in community. I think the term regeneration, particularly in the context of resource management, is very, very powerful to me. Because it symbolizes two things. The first is that the resource is ever-present. I understand the word ever-present can be a bit risky to use here. But for me, it means that the resource can indeed be depleted if it's abused and over-consumed. But if it's tended to and it's managed correctly and it's cared for in a sustainable way, it will be abundant and available to utilize whenever you need it. So we can think about things like water and food and clean air and soil for cultivation. All of these resources, these external resources, are ever-present 
when they're managed for and cared for correctly. Same goes for our inner resources. I see hope as another one of these inner resources. You know, hope is ever present, but it is also very sensitive to change and is in constant need of maintenance. Hope is a resource that gets us out of bed in the morning. It is what gets us out of abusive environments. Hope is also something that prepares us for radical change. But most importantly, hope is what alleviates us from the cycle of survivorship and allows us to live respectfully. So for me to see hope as ever-present is to see that everyone has this innate ability and capacity to imagine change and then manifest that change, actualize that change for themselves and for others. I think it's the first step, actually, to see everyone as having the capacity to be agents of change for real transformation to happen. But we also need to remember that hope is sustained when we are equitable in our understanding of capacity. That, yes, hope exists in everyone and hope has the ability to regenerate in everyone. But we also need to understand that each person has a capacity to dream of change and to contribute to change. And they will do that in different ways and at different times. There are so many factors that can restrict capacity building and inhibit the ability to hope and dream. Financial, emotional, relational, physical, political, environmental, the list goes on. You know, even awakening to the knowledge that the ability to dream a reality that is better and safer than the one that you're living in right now is inherent in every single being requires you to be in a safe enough environment to do so. Which is where the second reason why I absolutely love conceptualizing capacity building as the regeneration of inner resources like hope comes into it. And that is when we talk about regeneration, we're talking about the emulation of processes in nature and nature's capacity to renew. We talked a bit about this with Laura Formentini on regenerative healing in the context of maternal grieving. I'm going to expand that now in this episode. So I just want to give you an example of the most recent nature moment I experienced in regards to this, you know, uh, regeneration and hope. So about a week ago, I was helping my mum garden our front garden. So we have two gardens, particularly because she was concerned about one or two of the hedges not growing well so parts of the hedges are sort of drying out in kissy patches and she has been concerned about this since summer of last year and you know she kept saying do something we need to do something and we're just really confused but the summer went autumn went um and also the beginning of winter went too and all of a sudden now just a day before the first snow in london of 2024 she was like, we need to do this now. Even if you don't want to help me, just help me pull out the compost bags and the wood carvings. At least just help me do that and I can do the rest. But I was like, if I'm helping you pull out the bags, I'm definitely going to be helping you do the gardening. We had absolutely no clue that it was snow the next day, although it was really, really cold and we were doing that late afternoon, evening. But even though I really just wanted to sort of sit down with a cup of tea and um, not go back outside in the cold because I just came back from outside, I was like, okay, let me just do this. And that in itself was just about hope. Overcoming this fear of being out in the cold again was because of hope. That hope that the hedge will flourish and regenerate with our efforts. So first of all, this just highlights the regenerative ability of nature and the resilience to changes but also the essence of reciprocation when it comes to hope. 
when an effort is tied to hope, it has to be reciprocated for that hoped-for result to happen. And again, we had no idea if our efforts and attempts at reviving the hedge will work. We are still not seeing much change. But again, change is gradual in nature. It takes time and we require patience for that. We also done that knowing that there might not be much help. It might be a little bit, but it won't be that much. Perhaps it will. Who knows? But it was this knowing that the gratitude for our efforts will be there. Even if the hedge is responding negatively, that is still a response to us that our efforts are not enough and that we do need an intervention of some sort. So we will need a professional to come in, but that response will be there and the reciprocation will be there. And that is something that we talked about in the gift economy episode when I was talking about my master's dissertation, you know, where I was centering reciprocity in environmental caregiving, specifically environmental volunteering. While Star was a sort of bringing out the compost and putting it onto the soil, that was when I was realizing, wow, this is literally what I am planning on talking about for the episode, that acceptance is literally at the core of hope. We hope with the acceptance that we are able to replicate some parts of what used to exist and change what exists now to reach that future that we really do want to reach. And for that, you have to accept that, yes, this existed and now this is what exists and there is some uncertainty about what can exist. This is where I really want to emphasize that regeneration, oftentimes we see it as a sort of complete replication of the past. It is not that. Regeneration is all about adaptation and an attempt to restore with respect to what needs of the presence are now. But it's also knowing that time brings change. And no matter how small or large that change is, that change will happen. And that is a process of regeneration. You know, the end result can look slightly or significantly different to what existed before the change. It can be positive or it can be negative, but that is what we need to accept. Regeneration is basically a cycle within a cycle, within the cycle of life. A cycle where the desired result will always look and feel different under different conditions. We actually entered this home a year ago. It was also towards the end of January. The front garden was still quite green and luscious because it's conifer, it's evergreens over there, but the back garden was not so green when we arrived, obviously because it's winter, but the trees that were still quite green, for example the eucalyptus tree that we have, it was quite short in height. But under my mum's care and constant attention, and of course the love and the care that she puts into gardening, her gardening practices, we didn't even realise how quickly that tree shot up. And also there's some vines as well in the back garden and they have sort of just extended out extensively. But under our care, the hedge has not benefited so much. In fact, you're starting to see some patches. So that just proves that under different conditions of care and different modes of care, results can look so different. You know, when we came, um, the eucalyptus tree and the vines were quite short. But under our care, they have blossomed so well and they've grown so well. But with those same conditions of care, the hedge has not benefited much. In fact, it is seeing a sort of decline in growth. But it is also important to realise that each time we tend to these two gardens that we have, we bring that hope into the practice of tending and caring. We try different things when we see a certain response to our efforts by nature. 
And then we hope again, and then we try again, and it continues on. And with that hope, you can bring in new interventions and new ways of caring. But I think two things are really clear here. One is that nature's ability to regenerate is a call for remembrance of our own innate ability to regenerate our inner resources. Us being nature and nature being us. Nature can do it, so can we, because we are one. And the second is that justice processes in nature are full of trial and error. They're full of uncertainty. The process of regeneration within ourselves and our communities and our spaces and places is also full of trials and errors, as is the time we're living in now. It is crucial to accept that. But just as the hedge called us, I would say, to tend to it in the evening before the first snow in London, not even when it was really hot, the hedge called us at that particular time. That just proves and that just told me that the time has to be right to engage in regenerative processes and practice. You have to be called for that transformation. Perhaps the hedge needs our support the most right now. Perhaps that's why we got that strong urge to help the hedge. We felt aligned with the needs of the hedge and we acted on that calling because we felt the heightening of hope. Well, at least my mom did because, you know, I was a bit like, oh, should I, should we do it right now? Should we not do it right now? Literally in the middle of the task, we were like halfway through and I realized, wow, this is literally what I'm talking about. You know, at first I didn't feel that much of hope, but the physical aspect of working with the land and working with my mom, I think it definitely made me feel that sense of calm and comfort that somewhere this is going to help the hedge and I think anyone who engages in any sort of physical task of working with the land or even working with community you do feel that sense of calm sort of wash you over and wash over those fears that your efforts will not pay off and yeah that is something that I discussed in my dissertation um, in the gift economy episode if you haven't listened to it then I do recommend that you do but really this is all about what we're talking about here. It's all about care-informed management of resources. A little bit more context about the gardening situation. My mum kept pointing out to all of us that if we had tended to the front garden with as much care and dedication and attention that we did to the back garden, that perhaps we would see similar results. You know, when she would say that, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, I understand. You keep saying every day. But I am now understanding that it is very, very interesting that we have this, you know, our ways of prioritizing resource management. And again, it applies to our inner resource management too. So particularly in the case of the garden, we found it, I guess, more motivating to tend to the back garden, which want much more care because we're spending more time there. There are also flowers growing there. You're in that space a lot. Uh, The cats are also out there. So you start channelizing all of that energy to that space. But the front garden needed our attention to the same extent, which we weren't able to live up to. And I think that's very interesting because we oftentimes prioritize um, what will benefit us the most, particularly in that at that point. We oftentimes we don't think about the future. We just like, what will benefit us the most right now? We prioritize that. Which again makes sense because we do have a finite amount of energy and resources at a particular time. But if we remind ourselves of the regenerative capacities of these resources, and if we're able to channelize our energy into the places that need it the most, even though we find pleasure in the energy being channelized in other places, for example, our back garden, the result can look very different. 
And who knows, you may be able to have two very pretty, very luscious gardens after all. I've sort of hinted a bit at where I'm going to go next, but I'm sure and I hope that you're able to see that hope work is embodied, is somatic, it is all of our lived experiences and regenerating something close to what we once lived and what we once experienced. Again, this sort of extended metaphor of our gardens, I think is a beautiful way to put it. We had already experienced a time where the hedge was perfectly green and now we're looking at it and thinking there's something going wrong and we clearly haven't given enough attention and care to the hedge when it needed it the most. And that's because we have that lived experience of a hedge that looked healthy and lush and now it has those patches of dry areas. Just thinking of it in that way, it makes me think of another feminist body of work, which for me is closely tied to hope, and that is the politics of the body, which is different to the body politic. Feminist body politics argues that the body is the finest and most intimate scale of political space, so it is subject to the shaping forces of socio-political systems like colonialism and capitalism, heteropatriarchy, imperialism. Feminist body politics are often talked about in the context of activism and justice movements, as you can imagine, where people are resisting the controlling forces of these systems through the political spaces of their bodies. If you look deeper into that, that has a lot to do with regenerating hope. I first came across feminist body politics in my geopolitics module in my master's course. We didn't go into it with as much detail as I wished, but I was very inspired by it. And I briefly talked about it in my assignment, where I was able to use the material ontology of assemblage theory. And again, I'll cite some key references for those who want to explore this further, because, you know, we have some limitations uh, of time for this episode, so I can't go into it in much detail here. But I used assemblage theory to propose the Chipko movement in Goral Otrokan as an eco-political assemblage that is continuing to expand as a sort of open resistance formation as actors and elements join that movement space over the years. I am very, very close to the Jibgo movement, and I chose this movement particularly for the assignment for actually two reasons. The first is that I absolutely love materialism, especially within the context of resistance formations, because resistant movements are often reduced to these very spiritual and floaty sort of emotional movements. You know, they don't really have a material base, when in fact it has all to do with materialism, particularly the body. And the second is that my family are actually from Gorwal. Parents are, both my maternal and paternal grandparents are, so this was a wonderful opportunity for me to honour my people's fight for protection of their tree kin and for the Himalayan ecology. I think Chipko in itself is expansive, as is any political, eco-political movement. Um, there was so much to cover. So for the assignment, I specifically focused on how Gorwali women were able to foreground more than human rights in the movement. In this case, protecting the rights and the lives of the trees that were being threatened to be cut down. And they're able to do that by acting on the material capacities of their bodies, making the movement very much materialist. They acted on the agency of the body through their tree-hugging practices. And that's where the name of Chipko came from, which literally means let's stick onto, let's cling onto in Hindi. 
but they were also able to use their non-material capacities to sustain that motivation. And that's where the emotional and spiritual comes in. But again, even when we are talking about non-material capacities, we are talking about that within the body, right? So those spiritual and emotional motivations, they emerged from their material bodies and then they were able to carry out tree-hugging practices and make sure that these trees weren't cut down. Again, the Chipko is so, so beautiful. But I think what was particularly inspiring for me was that they, the Garwali women in particular were able to deprivilege their human interests by putting the rights of the trees before their own bodies. They knew that their bodies were at risk when they were hugging these trees together, but they'd done that anyways because they wanted to put the rights of trees before them. And in that way, they were reviving a really old, really ancient consciousness that sees humans as not more than, but equal to beings that weren't human. I like using the term more than human because it really helps us deprivilege and to decenter human interests, because that's the exact dominant culture that we're in right now. They were able to revive that old consciousness by prioritizing the health of the environment, not just because they needed those trees for their livelihood. And whilst the movement in itself wasn't immediately successful, it has inspired hope-based and care-led environmental work and movements across the world and it continues to do so. So yes, I do have a bit of bias because I am Garvali and the Chipko movement originated from that land that my family is from and of course I have a deep connection to that land. But I think also for me, it was very inspiring, particularly within that geopolitics module, because labeling the body as an agent of political change for me was very, very inspiring. But I also think there's a deeper beauty in seeing how the body as political interacts with other bodies that are political as well, and how the body tends to and cares for the needs of those bodies as well, as well as the body's own needs with that hope that these needs will be met. You know, you can see how hope is really infused in all of these activist movements that are all about using the body as a political space to push forward that transformation that is needed at those sociopolitical and moral systems. And I think this goes for any other political movement like the Chipgore that is fighting for the justice of those in particular who have traditionally been seen as less than human, which often includes humans as well. That fight for people who are not represented adequately by the justice systems that should be supporting them. I mean, you know, when we're talking about that fight, we're also talking about very deep level relational work. And relationality is all about knowing and understanding others who are not represented by the law and the justice system so that you yourself can utilize your privilege to represent them. When we're talking about the Chipko, Garwali women, they understood their privilege as humans in putting their sort of view across that you shouldn't be doing this. And they supported the trees by engaging their bodies in that. But we can also utilize our privilege in ways that can spread awareness for the people that we're fighting for to be seen. But again, without hope, relational work, activism work, none of this can be sustained. It has to be fueled by hope and the determination that the work that you're engaging in will come to fruition. But I think when we are talking about activism work, whether it's actually taking part in these protests and demonstrations, or whether it's just resisting the system in your own way, in your day-to-day, it is extremely strenuous. 
physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, system change work is very, very strenuous. And it can be life-threatening in many cases as well. That also means that our inner resources are at a great risk of being depleted very quickly and very frequently. So it becomes even more crucial that we are dedicating some of our energy to periods of rest in order to regenerate these resources. So that each time we come back into the work after resting, we feel more ready and we feel more energized and hopeful for our progression in system level change. And this is why I love talking about hope and this is why I wanted to begin the year off for the podcast in this way as well, because hope is what invites rest. If you take time off to rejuvenate and to regenerate your depleted resources, hopefully that will result in improved work when you return and continue on in that cycle of growth and rest. Hope is also what encourages periods of contemplation and reflection so that you can reassess your progress and decide if you do need to continue on as usual or make changes and oftentimes it will be the latter. But most importantly, hope is the seed for reparations. I really, really want to emphasize that because there is hesitation and discomfort in using the term regeneration. You know, I see it in the messaging of some major environmental justice platforms. They are constantly saying, you know, instead of using regeneration, let's use reparations. We heard a bit about it also in the episode with Sanjana Seko, where she said how she kind of rejected that label of regenerative storyteller because how regeneration is being used. And I understand that this hesitation is because of the co-optation of the age-old and natural concept by corporations and governments to essentially greenwash and ethics wash climate inaction and to push forward their business as usual agenda. I totally understand that. Um, and I understand why there's been this shift in terminology to reparations. It's this argument that we are not regenerating because oftentimes people can see as we're regenerating climate complacency. We're not doing that. We're co-creating an equitable future. But in this episode, I hope you can see that I have argued that regeneration is is not a process of replication and repetition. Regeneration is not about being indifferent to change. Regeneration is all about reparations. It always has been. It's all about adaptation and it's all about remembering things that we've done right in the past as well as where we've gone wrong to ensure that the desired result that we do reach will benefit everyone. I personally think it's quite harmful to ancestral and ancient ontologies but also nature itself to abandon the usage of an entire life force you know in our philosophies because it's being co-opted by systems of oppression. I think it's all about us reclaiming regeneration and rerouting it to its origins in mutual care, in reciprocity and also resilience. So that when we do turn our attention to the cycles in nature, when we are looking for inspiration, these cycles that are fully dependent on the regeneration of essential resources under the right conditions of care and support, whether we're looking at a forest or even the microcosms of our own personal gardens and our own bodies, we can feel deeply inspired and hopeful that tomorrow can look different if and only if we're able to balance our responsibilities or stewardship. That to even begin to resist and transform extractive systems whilst continuing to live under them, which in itself is very depleting for our inner resources and for our motivation and hope, to even begin to imagine that transformation, even if it's in community, 
we need to be carefully watching how our inner resources go through that cycle of regeneration, what different factors affect that cycle and influence that cycle. And then we need to patiently wait for the first buds of hope to blossom after periods of rest so that we can continue on imagining, dreaming, manifesting and realizing. Moving gradually to that future that we all deserve. Thank you for listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast. Subscribe to the podcast and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. Don't forget to give a rating on iTunes so that the show can reach other wonderful humans like you who also enjoy engaging in the conversations held in this space. Visit mindfuloveverything.com for full episode resources and show notes, as well as episode archives. Thank you once again for joining us in the new year, and I hope you continue on the journey with us to centering healing, reciprocity, and love in the shift towards a culture of mutual connectedness and care.